Hi, I'm iChurch. Hi, I'm Me Church. Who are they? Oh, this is the Russells. They're my next door neighbors. Uh, did you bring anybody with you today? Yes, as a, as a matter of fact, I did. I brought two people. I brought my wife. Uh, who's the other one? I only have one wife. No, the other person. Oh, one, two. Oh, you're really reaching out, huh? Yes, I'm a real people person. Let me talk for a few moments just to get you caught up with a series in case you may be here for the first time. We're in the third week of our series, Intentional Life. And uh, if, you, if you haven't been part of the first two services, let me give you just a quick run through of what it's all about. And for those of you who've been part of us, just hang with me for a few moments because I know you already know these things. Uh, imagine, if you will, that you went over to the Mercedes dealership and you bought the biggest Mercedes I had and you had the money and you paid cash for it and you drove it away from the lot. For some of you, I've already stunned your imagination. That's all you can imagine right there. That's all you can handle. But let's just say you could do it and you got it out here on Kellogg or K96 or whatever and you just couldn't get it above 40 miles an hour and you'd know something was wrong, right? You pay all, that, all those thousands of dollars for a Mercedes Benz and and you know it was designed to go faster than that. You know it was designed to run better than that. But, you know, here it is missing. You can't get it above 40. You take it back to the dealership and you say, hey, listen, I bought a Mercedes Benz. I didn't buy a Yugo. I bought a Mercedes Benz. I don't even, can you buy a Yugo anymore? I don't think you can, right? A lot of people here are under 30 saying, what's a Yugo? Um, but it was a bad Yugoslavian car that was manufactured and sold for real cheap prices. It was basically a throwaway car, just so you know that. But let's say you go back to Mercedes dealership and you say, hey, listen, I paid all this money for a Mercedes Benz and, and this thing's not running right. I know it was designed to do better than this. Now, for many of us, I just described our lives because it's like we can't get out of low gear. It's like we just never can seem to get it, get it working for us. And, and one day may be good, the next day may be bad. And, and we're, we're serving the Lord for a while and doing really well. The next thing we know, wheels fall off. And, and, and it's like we know we were designed to live a better life than we're living. We, we know we were designed to live a more effective, more productive life. And the good news is you were designed to live a life of purpose and a life where things do work out. Uh, as I said in the last two weeks, if you ever feel like you have a hard time getting things to work out, don't feel like you're all by yourself because if you study the Bible, you find that, you know, whether it's the church age or the people back in the Old Testament, they had a hard time too. They had a hard time getting their life in the zone. And I'm not telling us that to make us feel better. I, I just want you to know that there was a golden moment in the life of Israel when everything clicked. And it was during the life of a leader named Joshua. The Israelites, if you, if you know a little bit about the Bible, you know that God called them out of Egypt. If you've seen, you know, the Ten Commandments or you've read a little bit about the story, you know that the Israelites were slaves in Egypt and God wanted to bring them, God wanted to bring them into this land that was beautiful. The, the Bible metaphor is a land that flows with milk and honey. That's just a way of saying that it was a very productive place where, where crops grew freely and, and it was just an awesome place. The Bible calls it the promised land. And when they got there under Joshua's leadership, they just served the Lord, had a great time. It was a glory age, a golden age of Israel. They were in the zone. And, and so what I did was I went back to the book of Joshua, and I really began to analyze it and see what was it about this generation that allowed them to live life in the zone. And I found eight keys, and we're on the third one today. The first one, remember this, the first one was just stepping up to the mic. When God offers you a challenge and saying, yeah, yes, God, I, I'm up for it. I'm here. I'm, 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 I'm showing up. I'm ready to do what you asked me to do. Most people never get to that place. Most people will like kind of hold their life, you know, like this. And if God 
God is saying, I want you to follow me. It's like, well, okay, God, maybe I can give you this, maybe I can give you this, or, or this looks too hard, and, and it's going to require too much discipline. So a lot of us never get to that place when, when God offers us a challenge that will say, okay, I'll, I'll take it. I mean, face it, some of the things that God asks us to do are hard. And, you know, our flesh, want, you know, our, our, our nature kind of wants to rebel against that and say, well, well, that's too tough, and people aren't treating me nice, and, and I shouldn't have to do that, and all these things. Many of us never get to that place where we step up to the mic, and we talked about that in the first key. The second key, though, once you say, God, I'll do whatever you ask me to do, the second key is to try to build a climate of radical encouragement. Because what had happened with the Israelites 40 years before, actually 38 years before, was, you know, with Moses, they got right up to the border of the promised land, and they were just about to go over, and they sent 12 spies over, and 10 of the spies came back and said, man, we're going to go over there and get crushed. There are giants over there. We're going to get whipped, and man, we, we can't do what God asked us to do. And two of the, the spies, Joshua and Caleb, Joshua's the guy we're talking about. Caleb is his buddy. And they're cut out of the same piece of cloth, and, and they had all these eight keys at work in their life. They said, yeah, we can take the land. They tried to encourage the people. Well, Israel choked at that moment of destiny because ten outvotes two. And God said, okay, can't go into the promised land, can't go back to Egypt, Red Sea's closed. So all the thing they could do was go in circles in the desert for 40 years, 38 years really. And that's where, that's where they were until Joshua's generation Comes to, comes to the scene because that old generation that choked on God and didn't want to do anything and wouldn't step up to the plate, God had to walk, walk them in circles until they died. And so every, you know, only, only those, you know, at that moment when they choked, only those who were 20 and younger were the ones who actually got to go into the promised land. And so that's, that's where we find the second, the second key. At this, at this second time, when this new generation was on the border of Canaan, God came to Joshua and said, you're the new leader. The time has come for you. You've been willing to step up to the plate. But now here's the deal. I want you to act courageously. I want, you may not feel courageous, but I want you to act courageous. I want you to get stronger every day, and I want you to act bold. And so that's what God told Joshua. And so Joshua passed it on to the people. He said, I want you to act courageous, and I want you to act bold. And the people turned around and said to Joshua, hey, we're with you. We want you to act courageous, and we want you to act bold. Can you imagine every area's got their finger out saying, be bold, be bold, take risk, be bold. God says to the leader, be bold. Leader says to the people, you be bold. The people say back to the leader, you be bold. It was a climate of radical encouragement. And I talked to you about that last week. I said, first of all, you want to seek encouragement. There's a lot of difference between encouragement and sympathy. Sympathy says, oh, you poor thing, everybody has it out for you. And there's, there is a place for legitimate sympathy, but not a very big one. Encouragement infuses people with courage. It says, get back in the game. The game's not over. Let's go for it. Let's do big stuff. Don't sit here and whine. Don't sit here and pout. Don't sit here and be mealy mouth. Get up. Let's do something. That's, that's encouragement. So we talked about that last week. We said, first of all, want encouragement. Don't want sympathy, want encouragement, crave encouragement, give encouragement, and for all of us who are leaders, and that's just about everybody in here today, seek to build a climate of radical encouragement. And you're in hiring, you're in HR, you go after winners, you go after people who don't whine and moan and complain and talk about how everybody has it, you know, try to build, and this is true in your family, try to build a climate of radical encouragement. So that's a review that caught us up to today. Number one, first key, step up to the mic. When God says, I want you, I want you to do something, you say, here I am. I'm showing up. Number two, you're building this climate of radical encouragement. Let me give you the third one in thumbnail. Um, when you step up to the mic and then you begin to live in a climate of radical encouragement, something awesome happens at that point. God comes alongside and begins to work with you. God is there. His presence is there in your life. 
and all of a sudden it's not just you anymore, it's God at work with you, and the word gets out. See, if you want to live life in the zone, it's very important that you have good influence on other people. The most powerful influence that you will ever have is when the word gets out on you that you're not in this by yourself, that there's somebody else with you who is alongside of you helping you. The buzz gets out there. Like it did for, you know, the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. King throws them in the fire furnace, the word gets out. And not three in there, there's four. You know, the word got out about Daniel when he went into the lion's den. You know what? Those lions had their mouths closed. Why? Because Daniel was not in there by himself. That's the whole thing. So I just want to talk to you about this morning, the power of buzz. Wake up the neighbors is the title of the sermon. And if you'll give me just a few extra moments, I want to do something I don't normally do. I want to read through an entire chapter. So if you have Joshua chapter 2, this will be up on the IMAG screens as well. This is a world-class Bible story. I grew up in church, as some of you did, and heard a lot of Bible stories, and I still love them. I, I just sort of see the pictures when I read the Bible, and, and I hope God kept all this stuff on video, you know, because I want to see it. Maybe we get to heaven, God will just sort of play it and let us watch it develop. But this is a great Bible story. And so for that, for that reason, I want to take the time this morning. I know it's already 10 minutes after 10, but I want to take the time to read this entire chapter. And I'm going to come to four places. You know, if you, if, you have your, if you have a pen, if you want to mark this or just mark it in your mind, I'm going to come to four places, and then my talk today is going to revolve around those four spots. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, Joshua secretly sent out two spies. Okay, that's the first place I want you to mark in your mind. Joshua sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at Acacia. He instructed them, spy out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. So the two men set out and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there that night. But someone told the king of Jericho, some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out the men who have come into your house. They are spies sent here to discover the best way to attack us. Rahab, who had hidden the two men, replied, the men were here earlier, but I didn't know where they were from. They left the city at dusk as the city gates were about to close. And I don't know where they went. If you hurry, you can probably catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them beneath the piles of flax. If you're old like me and you remember the old westerns, Rahab said they went that away. Okay. Number verse 7. So the king's men went looking for the spies along the road leading to the shallow crossing places of the Jordan River. And as soon as the king's men had left, the city gate was shut. Before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up on the roof to talk with them. I know the Lord has given you this land, she told them. We are all afraid of you. Everyone is living in terror. For, this is the second place to mark, right here in verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. Just mark the part that says we have heard. Okay? And we know what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River whose people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above uh, and the earth below. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will be kind to me and my family since I have helped you. Give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, you will let me live along with my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all their families. We offer our own lives as a guarantee for your safety, the men agreed. If you don't betray us, we will keep our promise when the Lord gives us the land. 
Then since Rahab's house was built into the city wall, she let them down by a rope through the window. Escape to the hill country, she told them. Hide there for three days until the men who are searching for you have returned. Then go your way. Before they left, the men told her, we can guarantee your safety. Only, here we go, if you leave this scarlet rope hanging from the window. That's the third statement. Leave this scarlet rope hanging from the window. And all your family members, your father, mother, brothers, and all your relatives must be here inside the house. If they go out into the street, they will be killed. And we cannot be held to our oath. But we swear that no one inside this house will be killed. Not a hand will be laid on any of them. If you betray us, however, we're not bound by this oath in any way. Verse 21, here's the fourth statement. I accept your terms. I accept your terms. And she sent them on their way, leaving the scarlet rope hanging from the window. The spies went up to the hill country and stayed there three days. The men who were chasing them had searched everywhere along the road, but they finally returned to the city without success. Then the two spies came down from the hill country, crossed the Jordan River, and reported to Joshua all that had happened to them. The Lord will certainly give us the whole land, they said, for all the people in the land are terrified of us. Okay, you ready? We're going to go through those four statements real fast. I've got about, I think I could talk this morning for about six hours on this topic, and I'm going to try to get everything, the most salient material, into the next 25 minutes. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Here's the first one. Joshua sent out two spies. If you've been with us for the last two weeks, surely that's got to resonate just a little bit. Because 38 years before, Joshua's predecessor, Moses, had also sent out spies. But how many spies did Moses send out? Twelve, right. How many of them came back with a good report? Two. How many spies did Joshua send out? Oh, we're going to learn something big from this today. If you're in management, all antennas should go up right here. You know, when I first read this, and I thought about this years ago, I thought Joshua, on this point, was a better leader than Moses. Because Moses sent out 12 spies, and 10 of them came back and scuttled the whole deal. And Joshua only picked two guys he could trust and sent them out. And I was thinking to myself, on this point at least, Joshua was a better leader than Moses. But I was wrong. Well, let me show you what the Holy Spirit showed me as I was working on this, on this study. Moses was an awesome leader. It's not that Joshua was superior on this point. It was that Joshua had a better crowd than Moses had. Joshua was working with a better team than Moses was working with. Let me show you what I mean by that. Moses had to be politically correct. If there is one blight on our culture that is absolutely destroying us, it is political correctness. It is the idea that you cannot offend anybody. The first casualty of political correctness is truth. Because if I have to be politically correct, I have to be careful not to tell you the truth. Maybe I can't tell you the whole truth because the truth might not make you have a warm, fuzzy feeling. Moses was working with a group that had to have political correctness. There were 12 tribes. Moses had to pick a leader from each one of those 12 tribes. Why? Because if he didn't, if he sent 10 spies or 5 spies, the other tribes would say, well, we didn't have any representation. How do we know that it's good for our tribe? You know, and then on top of that, they had to pick the leader from the tribe that the people would say, okay, we like him. You know, it could have been that Moses said, well, I want to send Bert. And he said, well, no, we don't like Bert. Well, I'm going to send Ernie. Well, I don't like Ernie. Well, it finally came down to Big Bird, and you know what color Big Bird is. That was the, that was the way the spies were that went out. 
because Moses had to be politically correct. Now, the thing I love about Joshua's crowd is this. And remember this, you know, they had watched a whole lot. You know, it's like, like I talked about in a previous series. When you get to read somebody else's putt, that's good. And this generation that Joshua had, number one, there was nobody there outside of Joshua and Caleb that was older than 60. They had, they had watched for 38 years while they had gone in circles in the wilderness digging graves. And if you read about all this time that they went in the wilderness, about all they did was dig graves and the people were complaining and Moses was having to sort out all kinds of issues because these, this was not a good crowd. And God said, I, you know, here's the thing. If you're going somewhere, not everybody can go. Do you hear me? I mean, if you're going to go somewhere, great. You can't take everybody with you. You may want to take everybody with you, but you can't. And if you've got to be politically correct and if you've got to smooth over feelings, you're never going to be able to get where you want to go. Now, I'm not talking about being brusque. I'm not talking about being mean-spirited. That's a totally different thing. I'm just talking about being able to tell the truth. And that's what happened. Moses had a congregation. He had a generation with which he had to be politically correct, where they had to have a warm, fuzzy feeling. And what happened was... Ten, the 10 that they sent, 10 of them came back and said, we can't go. We're going to get waxed if we go over there. And the Israelites were doomed to be in the wilderness. But now Joshua's got a whole new crowd. They've watched what happened with their predecessors. They've watched what happened with the previous generation. And they said, we don't want to make that mistake again. They've already told Joshua. They said, look, you do what you need to do. You're the leader. We're with you. Just be courageous. Don't wimp out on us. We're ready to go. Listen, if you're in management and you know what it's like to have a top team, a great team of performers where everybody wants to do their best and take risks and do the job, and it's not about people, it's not about who they are personally, it's about getting the work done, you know the euphoria that comes from managing that kind of team. And that's what Joshua had. Now, here's the thing I want all of us to look at, whether you're, you know, whether you're the manager or whether, whether you're maybe the lowest person in the organization. Still, this is one thing that's just universal. Trying to keep everybody happy is a losing proposition. You cannot keep everybody happy. One of my favorite people, Bill Cosby, said this. He said, I don't know the key to success, but the key to failure is trying to please everybody. And that's a fact. Bill's right. If you, if, if, I, I, and, and many times, you know, knowing what's successful, that takes time, that takes risk, that takes, you know, God showing you what's going to work. But let me tell you something. If you're trying to keep everybody happy, you, you're going to fail. You're never going to get life in the zone. If you hand somebody else that much control over your life, you will never live life in the zone. I watch that here at Messiah. I watch people that could break out and be something great for God, but you know, they, they're like, they like have this little click to tell them what they can do and what they can't do and what they can sing and what they can't sing. And my, my, I have so much concern and, and, and almost have sympathy. If you'll, if you'll remember last week, I almost have sympathy for, for that kind of life. If you try to please everybody, you won't please anybody. Now, one more thing. Let me, go, let me and I'm just racing through this stuff this morning. I hope that the Holy Spirit will help you as you learn these things. Um, For these two spies, when they went over into Canaan, not having to be politically correct allowed them to focus on strategy. And I'm talking to some of you, you work in a large environment and political correctness is sort of built into your environment and you you almost have to walk on eggshells to make sure that you don't crack one. You know what it's like to have a hard time getting the job done because you have to bow, you have to be deferential to pro- political correctness. Oftentimes, being politically correct keeps you from focusing on this necessary strategy. 
But the fact that these two spies did not have to be politically correct, they did not have to come back and bring a warm, fuzzy feeling to the three million Israelites who were waiting to go into Canaan, it allowed them to focus on strategy. Think about how they selected Rahab's house. And, and I hope you understand, Rahab was a hooker, but there was nothing sexual going on here between the spies and Rahab. Just think with me for a moment. Think about the strategy. These were strange guys. They were walking into Jericho. Jericho was the big city. If Jericho fell, the rest of the land would fall. I mean, it was a walled city, impregnable. Nobody had been able to defeat Jericho. These two guys were Israelites. They were strangers. They were foreigners. How could they go into the city and, and, and raise as little attention as possible? Well, they went to the house of a hooker because, quite candidly, it is common for strange men to walk into that house. So that was a strategy. Secondly, we read that Rahab's house was in the wall of the city. Her window, her outside window was actually built into the wall of the city. So it was strategic, it was strategic for these two men to go into Rahab's house. And it's, it's the fact with all of us. And again, I hope you understand. I'm not talking about being brusque. I'm not talking about being mean. I'm just saying you do the right thing. Do the right thing. You know, if you have to live in a climate of political correctness where you have to try to please everybody, you're never going to be able to live life in the zone. Do the right thing. Many times you're going to have to buy something before you know the price tag. When you do that, it's so important to be doing the right thing. If you want to live life in the zone, you do the right thing. Hang the consequences. Do the right thing. Do what's right. Let God deal with the consequences. So I I want you to notice that first thing. Joshua sent out two spies. Now, the second line from verse 10. The guys are talking to Rahab, and uh, Rahab knows who they are. They don't think Rahab knows who, who they are. They're spies. They're there incognito, but they're up on the rooftop. Rahab has hid them, and, uh, you know, the king has found out that they're there, and the king is worried about it. And uh, Rahab comes up there, and she, after, after hiding them, is now explaining to them why she is helping them. And Rahab says, we have heard about what your God has done for you. And because, she said, we have heard what your God has done for you, we are terrified and we're afraid of your people. Now, this is what's so interesting to me, because if you think about what Rahab was talking to the two spies about, really she was talking to them about something that had happened 38 years earlier. She said, we heard how your God opened the Red Sea. Isn't that interesting that when the ten spies were there the first time, the people were already terrified of them? I mean, they were over here in in Canaan looking at the size of the giants, and the people in Canaan were terrified of the Israelites' God. But this is so important for all of us here today because many of us, if we think about the life we would like to live, we think, you know, it isn't possible for me to live that kind of life. I can't live a courageous life. I can't, I can't be successful in life because I've looked at myself and I just don't think I have what it takes to live the kind of life that I would really love to live. I just am inadequate. I don't have the personality. I don't have the speaking skills. I don't have the education. I don't have the background. I'm just never going to be able to live the life that, I, that I'd like to live. Education's good. Skills are great. Talent's wonderful. But remember this. If you are doing what God wants you to do and God comes alongside and helps you, you can do anything. Do you believe that today? I mean, I just want you to get that in your fabric. If God comes along and helps you, you can do anything. And the buzz is going to go out about you that your your whole is greater than the sum of your parts. Because God is at work in your life. Now, 
Probably about 15 years ago, 16, 17 years ago, I'll lose track of time, there was a guy named Henry Blackaby who, who wrote a book about knowing and doing God's will. And many of you probably have gone through a Bible study that, that was a spinoff of his book. It's called Experiencing God. If you remember Dr. Blackaby's book, and it was a great book, well, I think one of the greatest books that the Christian community has experienced in the last 50 years. But Dr. Blackaby said this. He said, if you want to live life in God's will, the first thing you do is you find out where God is working and you link up with him. You find out someplace where God is doing great stuff, and you say, hey, I'm going to be part of that. I mean, that's one reason why I want to encourage you to be part of what's going on in this congregation, because God is at work here, and lives are being changed here. And you say, well, I don't know what God wants me to do. Well, find out where God's working and get linked up with him. You know, I mean, if, here's the thing. If you're in the army today, and you're off by yourself, and you're trying to fight a battle, you're not going to be very successful. If you find out where the rest of the army is and get with them, some good things might happen. And so it is with Christ and with God's work. Find out where God is working and get synced up with them. And that's what happened with the Israelites during this generation. Rahab said, we've heard about what God is doing in your life. You know, if you've been following Jesus, I know one thing about you. I know that God has been at work in your life. And it's so powerful to share with other people what God is doing. I'm talking to some of you, you're believers, and, and you'd like to share your faith with somebody at work. And you say, well, I don't know how to get started. And maybe you went to some evangelism conference and... You learned, you know, four things to ambush people with. And I'm not against that. That's okay. But you're, you're saying, man, Mark, how do I talk to my friends about Christ? Have you ever, ever thought about just telling them what God's doing in your life? I mean, if you're following Jesus, God's doing things. I know he is in my life. One of the things that I love is just telling people what God is doing. It's the buzz. It's the thing that allows your influence to go beyond your own parameters. When God is at work in your life and good things are happening, your influence goes off the charts. So that's the second thing I want you to think about. Rahab said, we've heard about your God, and everybody here is terrified. Well, here's the thing that's kind of interesting to me. Rahab kind of blew the mind of the spies. She said, I want to join your team. This is one of the things that, that really gets to me, and I don't have time to develop this this morning, but you know, many times those of us who are followers of Jesus, we think that the people who aren't followers of Jesus don't want any part of him. And many times, they, they want to follow him. They just don't know how. They're kind of waiting for us to give them the clue, the word. I mean, Rahab's saying, you know, I know I live here in this big city, and nobody's been able to take this city before, but I've heard about what your God's like. And, and you know, we're polytheistic here. We believe there's a whole lot of gods, but I just believe in the one God, and I think your God is the right God, and, 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 and I want to join your team. I, I want you to protect me. When you guys come into the land, I want you to protect me and make sure that my, my family and I are okay. Now, okay, you're going to have to give me a little latitude here because the Bible doesn't say this, but I'm sort of putting two and two and figuring out, two and two together and figuring out what happened here. The two guys, the two spies, hadn't counted on this. I mean, they went over into Jericho thinking, this is the enemy. This is enemy territory. We're going to destroy this place, and we're going to go into it and take it because God said we should. And the last thing they expected was for a hooker to say, I want to join your team. And so now they're thinking about this. Well, how? How do we do this? How, 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 do we set, how do we set her apartment aside from all these other apartments when the war starts? Now, here's my guess. And again, if I get to heaven and I'm wrong, you come find me and we'll talk about it and I'll apologize for this, all right? But I think I'm right. Just want you to know that. <clears throat> I think these guys are probably about 50, these spies. I mean, because here's the deal. <clears throat> Joshua had to trust these two guys more than any two guys in the country. 
because he wanted to send out some guys he could count on. My guess is it's Joshua's assistant, Caleb's assistant. My guess is they were little boys when they left Egypt. And they had gone through the wilderness and seen all the things that happened. They were the two guys that Joshua and Caleb trusted more than anybody. And my guess is about this point, they looked at each other and said, has this happened before? You remember back when we were in Egypt? When we were kids? And, and the death angel was going to come through? And they had to take some, you remember they had to take the blood and put it over the doorpost so that when the angel came by and he saw the red blood on the doorpost, he said, hey, I'm not going to take the firstborn of this house. Everybody who had the blood on the doorpost, the angel passed by. And they're saying, you know what, we can't have a sacrifice here because we're, we have to be careful. Uh, is there anything red around here? <laughs> ah, there's that rope. Here's the deal, Rahab. I want you to hang that scarlet rope outside the window. That was their way of saying, Rahab, Join our team. Join our team. I mean, the Bible tells us the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. If there's one color we think about when we think about joining the team, it's that color red. And just as those guys probably remembered the blood on the doorpost back in Egypt, and they said, hey, there's something red there. We'll see that. Hang it outside the window. And all the time the Israelites were waiting to take Jericho when they were marching around the city seven times, as we'll talk about in a few more Sundays. They had to see that red rope hanging out Rahab's window. And as the spies, they probably said to everybody they're with, you see that window with the red rope hanging out? That girl wants to join our team. Now, folks, that's what evangelism is. That's the difference between evangelism and proselytizing. Proselytizing says, I want you to join my religion. I want you to join my club. Evangelism is something else. Evangelism is giving the good news of Jesus Christ. And letting people know what Jesus can do in their lives. Now, here's the thing. I think this is so exciting. Because it could have been that when, when Rahab said to these, two spy, to these two spies, now listen, I want you to protect me. It could have just been these two spies could have said to themselves, no, it's, we can't do that. You know, fortunes of war. Things happen. Things get broken. This girl's a hooker. I mean, what's, you know, what's the benefit here? We're going to put ourselves at risk. I and mean, we don't know what we're going to encounter. We, to try to protect this little environment. They could have just said to themselves, no, nah, it's, it's just too much. We can't do that. I'm going to say something that every winner in this congregation knows. If you are a winner, a true winner, I know something about you. Man, woman, old, young, top of the, top of the, uh, the management chart or the bottom. There's one thing I know about you. If you are a true winner, it is never enough for you to win. You have to make winners out of other people. That's, that's a universal. It's just in your DNA. If you're a winner, it's never enough for you to win. Others have to win. If you discover something, you have to share it. If you learn something that works, you got to tell other people what works. You're, it's just bursting in you. You've got to help people get to where God has brought you. If you're a true winner, that's what you try to do. And I'm not going to say loser, but if you're less than a winner, <laughs> what you will try to do is protect your turf. And if you learn something that works, you're not going to tell anybody else. Why? Because that person may get your job. And you're going to worry about that. But if you're a true winner, it's never enough for you to win. Everybody's got to win. You, you got to, I mean, that is what evangelism is about. It is about people who have discovered Jesus and who say, you know what? That's why I'm a winner. I'm not a winner because I'm a good person. I'm not a winner because I'm religious. I'm a winner because Jesus Christ has come into my life and taken me from being a loser to a winner. Now I want you to be a winner. And that's what happened with the, with the spies. They said, okay, hang this red rope out your window. 
But now here's the thing. The spies said to her, they got thinking. I mean, they didn't know who she was. They, did, they, they, were, they, were, they were concerned about something. They were concerned that she might start playing with the deal, that maybe she would take the rope in or maybe some of her family would get scared. They'd go out in the streets when the attack finally happened. They said, now here's the thing, Rahab. We want you to hang that rope outside the window, and you and your family have to stay in the house. If you go out in the street, we won't know your family from anybody else. If you want us to protect your family, you got to stay in the house. And Rahab said something that I dearly love. She said, I accept your terms. She didn't come up with possibilities and contingencies. She just said, I accept your terms. If you think about it, they weren't asking her to do anything or build anything or pick up a sword and fight or anything. They were just accepting, asking her to trust what they were telling her. And she said, I accept your terms. By extension, those were God's terms. If you want to go off the charts, if you want to live life in the zone, it starts with saying, Lord, I accept your terms. I think that's what Jesus was talking about when he said, my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, you see some of these car lots, you know, and, and, and you know, used car lots, and they'll have the sign up there that says easy terms. And I really think, and I'm not trying to be cute or flip with you this morning, but I really think that's what God is trying to say to you. My terms are easy. I mean, Jesus died on the cross so that we could have eternal life. God is saying, I'll be in your life. If you ask me, I'll help you. Easy terms. But so often we want, to, we want to transpose our terms onto God. And we want to say, now God, here's the deal. And God is saying, no, you misunderstood me. I was saying, here's the deal. And we're saying, God, we want you to accept our terms. And God is saying, no, I want you to accept my terms. And that's why so many of us are struggling. I mean, in our lives, we're, we're trying to get God to accept our terms. We want life on our terms. Never live in the zone that way. The only way to live in the zone it's to say what Rahab said. I accept your terms. Now, the world is a history of, of how far people can fall. And we live with that today. Kenneth Lay, even, you know, heads of businesses, political figures. I mean, we, we keep hearing about these stories about how people fall. Barry Bonds, they're at the height, and look how far they fell. That's the story of this world. The story of the Bible is just the opposite. It's the story of how far people can rise when they accept God's terms. Oh, the story of Rahab's a world-class story, but it doesn't end here. The story of Rahab is how, it's a story of how far somebody can rise if they will just accept God's terms. I mean, we've already talked about it. She was a prostitute, a streetwalker, a woman of the night. She lived in Jericho in Canaan. She had no godly influence in her life. She lived in a polytheistic culture. I mean, she was, by every stretch of the word, a throwaway person, if you think in religious terms. But there was a point when Rahab said, we talked about it a few moments ago, she said to God, I accept your terms. Now, it's not the last time we see her because the Bible sort of takes us through time. We come to the New Testament. By this time, Jesus has already been on the earth, preached his messages. He's died on the cross. 
He's risen from the grave. He's gone back to heaven, and the church is cranked up and running. And, and the writer of Hebrews is writing a letter. And when we get to the chapter, the 11th chapter of his book, he begins to give us the Mount Rushmore of the Bible. He is talking to us about the heroes of faith. Abraham is there. Moses is there. He refused to esteem the pleasures of this world, great riches, because he had greater respect for the riches that God brings. Moses is there in this Mount Rushmore. His image is there for us as we look back. Gideon is there who went after the Midianites with his 300. But as we go through this panorama, this Mount Rushmore of the Bible, suddenly a woman's face comes into view. You know who it is? Let me read it to you. Hebrews 11, it was by faith that Rahab the prostitute did not die with all the others in her city who refused to obey God, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This is the Rushmore of the Bible. And what do we find? We find this girl who was a hooker in, in, in Jericho, a prostitute, who came to God and said, I accept your terms. And now, as we pass through the Mount Rushmore of the Bible, Rahab is there. Because there is no limit to how far you can rise when you tell God, I accept your terms. If you think that is rarefied air, it gets even thinner. Because in Matthew chapter 1, we have the blue book of the history and the genealogy of the first family. When you open Matthew chapter 1, you are reading the genealogy of the people whose lineage leads to Jesus Christ. These are the people in whom Jesus, in whom Jesus' body carries the, their DNA. Their, their, their chemistry is part of the body of Jesus. Would you be surprised to know that Rahab made that list? Moses didn't make that list. Aaron didn't make that list. Job didn't make that list. But Rahab did. Let's read it. Salmon was the father of Boaz. His mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed. His mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. And if you keep reading, you'll get all the way to Jesus. How's that? I mean, you think about that. I mean, as I mentioned a moment ago, the physical body of Jesus contained part of the DNA of this woman called Rahab. Why? Because she wasn't the same person that God found when she was in Jericho. God changed her. I find it interesting that Rahab went from being a prostitute to being very literally in the body of Christ. And you know, you think about that. The Bible calls the church his body. And some of you, if we could see where you came from, it wouldn't be too pretty a picture. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse says, says this. Chapter 6, verse 11 says that some of you used to be prostitutes, and some of you used to be homosexual, and some of you used to be adulterers, and some of you used to be thieves, but you're not that anymore because you have been washed by God through the blood of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Rarefied air indeed, because there's no limit to how high you can rise when you turn to God and say, I accept your terms. I'll take the deal. Don't want to add, don't want to negotiate. I accept your 